I'm Vivian. And I'm Justin. And we are your hosts for the podcast series called Mastering Your PhD, sponsored by Les Fonds de de Quebec, and powered by Nero, the next generation mental health platform. This podcast is for students by students, aimed primarily at graduate students like yourself, who are trying to navigate through the ultra-competitive and challenging world of academia. So today's episode four, titled Super Parent, and we have with us a superstar, Dr. Marco Loggia. He's an associate professor at Harvard Medical School who studies the science of pain. So interesting. So interesting. And pain, especially chronic pain, is so understudied that oftentimes it is pushed to the back burner, a lot like mental health. And so we talk about that relationship between pain and mental health. And he also talks a lot about his research that he's super passionate about at Harvard, but also balancing that with being a father. And how do you do both well? Husband as well. And a friend, he has such a balanced life. I, we were listening to him and we we're like, wow, how can we be more like Marco? Super interesting and such a nice guy. We're super excited to present to you, Marco. So we love to start our podcast with getting our guests to think back to when they were grad students. So think back to your time at McGill and what your headspace was, and what you were doing on a Friday evening. So think back, if you can put yourself back on a Friday evening at McGill. Where were you? What were you doing? What were you thinking about? Huh. So it feels uh, ages ago. <laughs> it was not that, that long ago, but it feels like ages ago. Because in the meantime, you know, of course, uh, a few years have passed. Uh, a wife and three kids and, and, and a career in a different city. But I think I can still remember... First of all, McGill and, and, and Montreal, those were probably four of the happiest uh, years of my life. I, I should start by saying that. So my, my I don't know, suggestions or, or, or anything that I would say is colored by that, just so you know. Um, so Friday afternoon or Friday evening, uh, you know, certainly there's uh, a lot that the city of Montreal has to offer to people in their 20s. So I would definitely go out for, you know, restaurants or, or, or maybe maybe a pub or, or uh, you know, you know a, a lot of dinners with my wife and, and, and friends. And, so you, uh, you were married during your graduate studies? I, so I met my wife who was, uh, at the time, my wife Nazma, she actually was a research assistant in the laboratory mm. where I was doing my PhD. So a little bit of a problematic <laughs> situation there. Uh, and, and mind you, we were not getting along then. Uh, I'm hoping we get along a little bit better now. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. So I actually met her pretty early on in my stay, uh, my life in Montreal. So a lot of time spent certainly with, with her and, and of course other friends. And maybe a little bit of squash playing with some friends and, and I play in, you know, some bands. So occasionally we'll go out and have concerts. So yeah, nice. a great, it was very a great well place balanced. to be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very good. So can you give us a little summary of what your research um, is oriented at right now? Sure. So I am uh, primarily a brain uh, scientist, a, a neuroimaging scientist, and I focus on the study of chronic pain. This is really the main focus. Um, I study mostly patients with different chronic pain conditions to try to understand um, what uh, mechanisms can. Uh, so, first of all, what does it mean when you live for many, many years of pain? Like uh, with pain, how um, is, is how is your brain adapted to it? How is the brain affected? 
a little bit of spinal cord studies too, but mostly brain. And um, we focus a lot on the study of uh, um, you know brain and also neuroimmune, uh, neuro and neuroimmune correlates of brain and mechanism of of, of pain. I apologize. And so we use a functional MRI. And we use also other techniques such as a positron emission tomography to really try to get at uh, uh, these questions. What, why certain people develop persistent pain and others don't? Um, so you're really working on the chronic so, part of the pain? Uh, mostly, yes. Of course, I'm very much interested in, also in uh, the uh, acute processing of pain. Uh, but I think the big questions that my lab is asking is really how can we uh, resolve the problem of, of chronic pain, which is really vexing and has a lot of uh, implications, a lot of suffering, and you know, even even from an economic standpoint, and there's, there's certainly a huge problem. Right. And if you could orient us a bit to the field, is there a consensus about where pain is located in the brain? Like what parts or what regions of the brain light up? Or is that like an open question still? Oh, that's a, actually a very timely question. Um, so the answer is probably uh, almost certainly no. We we don't we, we don't quite know what part of the brain really is responsible for pain. So uh, most of pain research um, in humans has been done until quite recently using acute pain stimulation. So you take maybe healthy volunteers or maybe even a patient with chronic pain disorders and you try to do some type of provocation. Let's say you. You use some type of stimulation uh, that give a little burning to the skin, or maybe you squeeze their their calf uh, so that you develop this type of a, a ischemic type of pain, or you inject some hypertonic saline, or and then you see how the brain uh, responds to that. Now the problem with that is that if you do that, what you're seeing is a lot of it is the um, the regions that are involved in uh, the perception of a salient event are actually um, responding. So. Uh, those are um, alarm bells that you're detecting in the brain and not necessarily what's really mediating the experience of pain. Um, and so th there is a question about uh, whether any of this really applies to uh, and, and, and help us advance our understanding of, of chronic pain. And uh, if you actually look at the, uh, what brain changes occur in chronic pain disorders, actually they seem to not so much occur in the same areas that are seen as involved in acute pain stimuli. So certainly there's a little bit of a paradigm shift lately uh, in terms of what we uh, understand to be the brain correlates of, of chronic pain. Uh, there is a lot to, to, to study, a lot that hopefully will keep me uh, employed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of, it's always frustrating when you're re researching the brain. It's frustrating, but encouraging. But the fact is that is, is that we don't know much about that organ, right? It's yeah. a mysterious box with so, it's oh, so yes. important. And so it's implicated in everything literally. And yet we don't know where things come from. Why do we have pain? And it's, it's an interesting that you, that you research that, but a lot of people are asking the question, what's the difference between, you know, uh, what, what, the fact of having our brain hurt? Is that something that's in the brain? Because I know a lot of people working in the clinical setting, they're saying, you know, I've, you know, I feel like my brain hurts. Like you a know, mental pain. Like a mental pain. Is that the same kind of pain as a pain in your arm, your pain in your uh, leg? Is, is it the same receptors? Is it the same... What is the difference? 
Yeah, it's an inter- interesting question. So uh, there has been actually some research suggesting that emotional pain, uh, if you look at the, the brain scan of pe- people experiencing emotional pain, if you look and you compare them to uh, those from patients or healthy volunteers experience physical pain, there is some overlap. But again, you know, uh, you know, uh, things that hurt you emotionally, things that hurt you physically tend to have something in common, which is they, they orient your attention. They're, they're something that uh, they're very salient. So, uh, you know, the claim that there is an overlap between emotional and, uh, and physical pain, a little bit, it's a little bit overblown. Having said that, actually, my very first study done in McGill was actually to try to understand whether observing other people in pain would actually uh, affect one's own experience of pain. Like mirror neurons Um, or something? Well, yeah, it's actually funny to say that. Yes, yes, something like that. So this, in that case, was not a brain imaging study per se. It was actually um, a psychophysical study, a study using quantitative sensory testing and this type of um, exogenous pain uh, stimuli to, to uh, study the percept, the percept itself. And what we saw is that, so what we did, it was actually a funny study. It's a fun study. We actually had one confederate who, by the way, happened to be uh, you know, a research assistant in the lab, right? And he was... Uh, uh, pretending to be another uh, participant in a study that was being filmed. And we would show two separate films taken from the same participants, from, from this research assistant, to um, real actual uh, study uh, subjects. And uh, in uh, one version of the film, um, you know, this guy, Eric, he, w- he would really uh, try to um, describe a story uh, very heart-wrenching and, 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 you know, try to evoke empathy. In the other one, it would actually tell us like I was a jerk and, you know, very unlikable guy, et cetera, et cetera. And then we would test, um, we would expose the study participants uh, to pain stimuli before and after showing either the high empathy video, that's how we call it, or the <laughs> low empathy video. And actually what we were able to see is that uh, after seeing uh, the empathy engendering uh, video, uh, the, this uh, participant would actually start feeling more pain. So, um in a way, this supports, in a way, the, 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 the hypothesis that, that, you know, seeing other people in pain can actually sensitize one's own pain pathways. Um, I don't know if it's true, but uh, certainly there was a suggestion. That's, that's very interesting. And I heard about this claim that, you know, by taking Tylenol, you can reduce emotional pain. Is that true? I, I've seen that. I've seen that reported. Certainly, there, there was a study very, very highly publicized. Of course, you know, there's, you know, studies, uh, you know, need to be replicated. That's something that we always uh, we have to stress. Uh, but it, does that mean see. that it comes from the same place in the brain? If we come back to that, it's a possibility. Uh, you know, uh, it's certainly, you know, again, one single study cannot really answer that, but it raises the intriguing possibility that really this this. Uh, uh, shared representation in the brain, right? Um, you know, whatever it's hurting f- emotionally is the same thing that hurts physically. And then if you can uh, use a drug that calms down, quiets down the mechanism, you might actually have an effect on both. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, yeah. I don't know if I would bet my house on it, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, thinking about actually this intersection between physical and mental pain, I think it's really interesting because, you know, our whole podcast is about mental health. And so today, as I was thinking about pain and how that relates to mental health, I, I was thinking about how both of them exist at the intersection of neurobiology, but also perception and more of this, um, you know, like pain is, is based on a person's self-reported pain, right? And so um, 
I was interested to, to hear your experience about the challenges of working in pain research, um, because I think one thing about working in mental health is this awareness, right? People kind of say, oh, are, are you really struggling mentally? Because sometimes um, it can be downplayed when when it's just based on self-reported um, mm-hmm. evidence. And so I was just wondering about about that kind of if, if that kind of same awareness problem exists in pain research as well. Oh, certainly. Um, there is a lot of issue with the uh, uh, stigma and uh, you know not believing and dismissing people uh, in particularly in certain conditions. So one of the issue of chronic pain, uh, many chronic pain conditions, is that there is no objective biomarkers. So we are we are looking for it, right? We are looking for it actively. I think there has been some uh, you know progress recently, um, but you know right now there is no objective test. You know, the best thing that a clinician can do to know if you are in pain right now is to ask you. you, Exactly. Are you in pain? And if you ask, exactly. And then there is, of course, this, this is a very, uh, imperfect measure, measure, right? Scale zero to 10, you know, how pain, how much pain you present. Very imperfect. You know, I'm Italian. So probably I'm going to tell you, you know, oh yeah, I'm nine out of 10, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, there are cultural, uh, gender, sex, and age-related effects. And and it's it's a a mess. Yeah. Like, what Uh, is pain? (laughs) Yeah. Well, there there are definitions, but certainly uh, the definition is growing. growing. So initially, you know, I think it's moving away from a simple uh, sensory response that used to be considered. Uh, and now it comp- encompasses a m- more like a multi-dimensional, um, you know, uh, multi-dimensional nature. And uh, but certainly, it's it's a very complex issue. And and you know to you know to stress again how much stigma there is there. So there are some conditions such as fibromyalgia, right? These are conditions in which uh, so it's a, it's a pain. It's mostly uh, women. Um, and uh, the, the experience this uh, vaccine uh, disorder is characterized by completely, you know, medical and explained uh, musculoskeletal pain and, and a sort of other um, uh, issues, you know, memory and refreshing sleep uh, and other negative aspects, et cetera, et cetera. And if you actually look at, you know, brain scans or, or body scans or any other tests, you know, a lot of these women seem to be, and I shouldn't say women because I actually, also, many men, I should say, uh, suffer from fibromyalgia, but a lot of these patients look normal. Um, and, so, and this paired with the fact that, you know, it's predominantly uh, female, this has led, you know, a lot of dismissal. This is like, oh, middle age, uh, you know, crazy woman, uh, you know, this, you know, I, I heard, uh, yeah, I certainly heard a lot of dismissal that it's very um, upsetting. Um, so that's why it's very important for us to actually demonstrate um, that there are some objective, objective uh, changes in the brain of these patients, um, whether fibromyalgia, whether whether gulf for illness, which is another unex- medically unexplained uh, ailment, and uh, so this is what we're trying to do. And uh, you know, we always have the, we always think of pain as being something that is negative uh, in everyday life. Like we don't want to pain. Is the aim of um, not particularly your, your research, but the research in the field, are we aiming to live in a world without pain or is there advantages to pain as well? 
Well, what I would say is that uh, pain certainly is a very, very much an adapted value in the acute context. So when you are stepping on a nail with your bare feet, right, or uh, you know, you're, you're putting your hand on a stove, it's good to know that <laughs> there is an alarm bell going on in, in, right. in your brain, your body, right? Yeah. So that's absolutely helpful Necessary. And, and, and helps you uh, to survive. And in fact, I can tell you, we actually had studied a very interesting population um, in Quebec uh, due to a founder, mutation, a founder mutation, genetic mutation. There's actually a group of people uh, that are insensitive to pain. You say, oh, this is great. Okay, fantastic. Well, not so much. You know, a lot of them, unfortunately, don't live for long. There's a lot of amputation, a lot of... So the ability to perceive acute pain is absolutely advantageous. The problem is that when, you know, pain can become then uh, chronic, it can outlast its originator, uh, its, its original insult or event that caused it. And gone unchecked, and and that becomes you know uh, what we call dysregulated. That becomes uh, maladaptive. That becomes something that is not good for you. And so we, I, I don't think there is any uh, proof that any of this is really helpful at all. And the only way we quantify pain if is 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 by asking the person, or is there a way through neuroimaging that we can quantify? Yeah, we are looking. We are looking at that, but unfortunately, there is no objective biomarker right now. There is not a blood test to tell me you're in pain or not. You might not know right now. I have some neck pain, um, uh, but you know, you the only way for you to know is that I decided to tell you. Right. And speaking of therapies, would it is the only thing available something like Tylenol or Advil, where it kind of works on the whole nervous system, or are there any promising therapies that are different from that? Uh, interesting. Yes. No, certainly uh, it's a, also a very active area of investigation. O of course, as you certainly know, there's a big issue with uh, um, opioid overprescription, yeah. misuse and abuse. abuse. So, so there is a big push by funding agencies such as, you know, the National Institute for Health in, uh, of Health in uh, the United States and many others uh, everywhere else in the world, in Canada as well, of course. There's a big push to identify uh, new methods to treat pain that are effective and are less... And they're not uh, addictive. The, yeah, they are not addictive, exactly. Uh, and uh, so actually, I am working in an area that um, it, it's related to this because what I really kind of, like a small niche that I kind of... Um, developing my, in my own uh, research career is uh, uh, linked to the study of uh, neuroinflammation in pain. So what we're trying to figure out is whether patients with chronic pain conditions actually have an inflammation in brain or spinal cord. And if we can demonstrate that that's the case, then you can consider treating this patient in a completely different way. You start using drugs that uh, essentially you know, modulate the immune response rather than, you know, using anti-epileptics or, or, uh, or which are also used for, for pain to quiet down maybe the neural activity or maybe uh, opioids, et cetera. And uh, yeah, and this is something that, of course, you know, I, I didn't come out of, uh, come up with this uh, out, of, uh, out of the blue. Uh, there is a lot of animal research suggesting that, you know, if you actually take an animal and you injure it, uh, then that animal will actually develop a, a, an immune response. There's these cells in the spinal cord and in the brain called the glial cells. And uh, 
you know, uh, you can actually see these glial cells get all excited and become activated and start producing um, these inflammatory mediators that kind of sensitize the pain pathways, right? And if you treat them pharmacologically, then, you know, the animal's pain behavior are reduced. So all, this is exciting, suggesting maybe we can use this approach for humans. The problem is that until recently, uh, the ability, our ability to uh, image neuroinflammation in in behaving and living humans has been very limited. Uh, so I was actually, in the, I probably should say, you know, out of luck, to be honest with you, uh, you know, the right place at the right time where there was, the, you know, the development of new um, methods to image inflammation. And we were indeed able to see, we started with chronic back pain and we, we, then we went to fibromyalgia and migraine and many other conditions that really uh, there seems to be a neuroinflammatory response really suggesting that, uh, now we should really look more aggressively at the possibility that, uh, you know, glial cell modulators like in, uh, neuroinflammation uh, inhibition might be a, ther a therapeutic strategy. Interesting. It's very, it's related a little bit to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's in the, in, in the fact that, you know, those are also possibly, we don't know for sure, but possibly caused by uh, neuroinflammation by those same glial cells you know, so is there a link to make, to be made between the two? Absolutely. No, absolutely. So there is a lot of interest in neuroinflammation right now in general. Um, this is why actually I, um, you know, I've been collaborating with uh, many, many groups. Uh, you know, the study of neuroinflammation actually makes me have friends in different places. Um, you know, I, I collaborated with the people interested in the study of uh, ALS, uh, Lugaric disease. Uh, and we see a lot of inflammation in the motor cortex and the corticospinal tracts so or whatever the, you know, the connection between the brain and the rest of the, and the muscles, right, that we know are degenerated. We, we, we've done studies, um, again, I'm mostly, I, I'm the cheerleader with these studies. And I don't want to take too much credit, but I've been helping other people studying, let's say, inflammation, neuroinflammation in Alzheimer's. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Hunt Huntington disease. And a lot of people are looking at Alzheimer's. Actually, I've not done it uh, uh, personally. Um, primary lateral sclerosis, so multiple sclerosis. So and, um, inflammation is kind of center to many illnesses and disease. Do you think that there is a chance that it plays a part in psychiatric disease or illness? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I can tell you that, um, so right now, you know, once... When, when, when something it becomes hot, right? Well, in the case of inflammation, it's kind of funny to say that that's hot, but it's certainly a hot, a hot topic right now. And it looks like there is a neuroinflammatory hypothesis of everything, uh, neuro, you know, neurodegenerative disorder, autism, but also, in, and, and the data actually there start becoming convincing in uh, psychiatric disorders. There is a couple of studies really linking um, elevation of the same markers that we see elevated in our patient population um, um, being elevated in uh, patients that say with major depressive disorder, uh, patients with uh, suicidal, suicidal ideation. And, and in fact, my own group at one point, because of course chronic pain is very highly comorbid uh, with uh, depression, anxiety, there's, there's a lot of, you know, the, the two things tend to go very much together. We actually decided to, to uh, take a look at whether we could identify a negative affect uh, correlate a neuroinflammatory uh, correlate of negative affect comorbid in chronic pain. So we actually asked the question, are there any part of the brain where our inflammatory marker correlates with the depression score? We had depression score, you know, we used the like depression. And if indeed, we did see 
the same region popping up that the depression literature showed us. So we saw the same region. I mean, I can certainly name a few of them if you're interested, but you know, some the same part of the brain that show elevation in this neuroinflammatory marker in patients with major depression are the same one that show an association with the depressive score in our patient chronic pain. So I think it's, and this has been replicated a couple of times. So it's, I think it's real. Wow, really interesting. You know, we could talk forever about your research, but <laughs> if I may um, ask something a bit more personal about your mental health, you know, as this podcast is about kind of mental health in grad school, uh, I, I was curious about, you said you did your PhD at McGill and I'm guessing you got married um, at McGill. Is that correct? Oh, yes, 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 yes. We, we, we get married in Milan, but, you know, while oh, I was okay. still doing my PhD, yes. Great, yes. Great. Oh, we weren't married in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the lab. <laughs> That'd be crazy. No, I didn't get married. You know, the, 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 my, my mentor did not officiate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, but I was just wondering, what was it like for you to move from McGill to Harvard? And what was the, you know, was it hard, the transition? Um, what was it like to go from grads, uh, being a grad student to being faculty? And just if you could talk a bit about like mental health and transition um, in that process, uh, that would be great. Yeah. So, uh, ooh, how much time do I have? <laughs> okay. So I'll try to, so let, let's say, I think that in my case, I, I had a pretty smooth transition, um, you know, from, uh, you know, a PhD student and first as a postdoc, I, I spent, you know, a couple of years as a postdoc, then I got a faculty position and, and truly for me, uh, I mean, you know, I don't know if there is a, a recipe that works for everybody, uh, but in my mind, uh, you know, one important, there's a couple of different factors that I could, could single out. One thing is that I try to really uh, have a good work-life balance. I think it's important, it's important to have some boundaries. Uh, I, you know, I'm not saying I don't work hard because I work hard and, and, and I, you know, I am really passionate about what I do. And, and often I think about what I, <laughs> what I left in the lab while, while I'm elsewhere, but, uh, but still, I think one important thing is really to try to, you know, create some, um, uh, boundaries. It's, it's, it's quite important. This is my work and this is my, you know, my real life. Let's put it this way. Right. Um, and so that was, to me, it's important. Of course, having, you know, a companion, a wife, you know, made, up, made, made this helpful for me, for sure. Is she still working and, and with you? No, 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 no. She, no, that's why we're still married. <laughs> <laughs> Good pro tip for everyone out there. <laughs> yeah, she actually left pretty early on, which is probably why we did get married. <laughs> um, but I think that was one thing. And, and the other aspect, I think that was really, I was really lucky. It's really finding the right mentors. Uh, finding the right mentors, um, it's a little bit of luck, um, and hopefully also a little bit of uh, being proactive too. Uh, so I, what I, what I like to think is that when you're looking for a mentor, um, you know you you have to do a little bit of in, uh, introspection and try to understand what kind of a mentee you are, right? What what, what type of mentor mentee relationship you think will work better, right? So do you value you know, independence, right? You want, you know, a mentor that, you know, just leaves you alone and then maybe you meet every week or two and then see what happens. Or you actually want like feedback and encouragement. So, so if you understand that and you kind of ask questions, you're trying to pick the one, not everybody's in the condition that they can pick, but, you know, can try maybe try to understand what type of mentor, the prospective mentor you're considering would be, that would really be key. Having good mentor and a good, you know, um, mentor-mentee relationship to me was very, very important. And also try to, the other thing is that I try to 
find multiple mentors. There's not only one mentor, there's not only your PhD mentor or your postdoctoral mentor. So I, I try to find many, many mentors. Every, nobody's really good at everything. And everybody, somebody might not be the best person to teach you a specific, you know, skill mm. to, you know, you know, whatever, technical. how to run the scanner, technical, etc. And some other person actually can be a, a, an excellent guide for you know, soft, soft skills. Oh, yeah, how soft to, skill. how do you, you know, how you present deal your with, research or, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, and, and, and to answer, you know, I tend to give very circuitous uh, <laughs> answer to, to straight questions, but I would say that in my mind, um, again, finding, you know, creating a, a work-life balance and finding good mentors and know how to operate a healthy mentor-mentee relationship was really the thing that made my, uh, you know, transition quite, quite smoother than, than could have been. Super interesting. Do you, are you a mentor? I'm sure you're a mentor for many of your students today. Yes. And, and uh, it's, it's something that I really enjoy. I have to say, um, you know, to me, it's very important uh, to, you know, to really give back. And, and when I see that somebody is, is succeeding and, you know, a student got a paper out, they got, you know, got a job position, you know, uh, you know, got an assistant professor somewhere and, or, or other type of, you know, uh, you know, successes. I, I really, to me, it's, it's an, a personal achievement. And as mentor, how, you know, how do you, what did you see during the pandemic with your students? Was it hard? What was the, what was, what, what were the feeling as students uh, at Harvard today? Yeah. So I, well, I can tell you, so in my laboratory is actually interesting because, um, so I had several members that I, you know, <laughs> I actually, I have yet to meet in person. So I have, I want to think three or four members two or three postdoctoral fellows and one, uh, actually, and two CRC, two clinical research coordinators that we meet every day over Zoom, but I actually yet to shake my hand. It's kind of an interesting, interesting times. Yes. <laughs> um, so I can say uh, certainly not easy for, for, for anybody. Uh, truly, we know that it's a, it's a euphemism. Um, but I can tell you that I tried really to uh, to do all I could really to make sure that everybody knew that um, it was a community, right? Um, I had people, for instance, come. You know, I you know one postdoc come come from Australia, and the other one is from China, and and uh, the other one come from Italy, and they're all far away from their families, and so uh, you know I tried to. Um, make sure that everybody felt that was part of a group. Right? And so how do you do that? Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's a challenge. So one thing is that, for instance, we changed our mode of communication. So we, we decided, so every morning, um, and it's not something that we would do in real life, right? But <laughs> every morning we, have, we actually have a lab check-in between uh, 9, 9.30 and 10. Everybody, you know, just see each other's face. It gives an opportunity to... Uh, you know, in take a shower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pyja- yeah, they, nobody sees that you are wearing pajamas, but at least, uh, you know, <laughs> <Jeez>. from the <laughs> torso up. <laughs> um, then, you know, try to create also, you know, an environment also a little bit more informal than it would have been. I think that's, we, we all communicate via Slack and, you know, try to also have like a fun channels or social channels. And, and I, I try to be available to them also, you know, sometimes I'm finding myself responding to Slack at, you know, 10 or 11 in the evening 
you know, I, I want them to know that I, you know, that, that I'm there with them. Right. So, um, and so, you know, I don't have a magic bullet for that, but I think that we actually talked about it recently and everybody felt that they did, they were able to, as a result of all of this, be part of, feel part of a community. And to me, that was an important thing because I, social isolation is really, uh, you know, it's been hard on everybody. And so did the pandemic teach you anything that you're going to keep on afterwards as a supervisor? Huh. So, uh, well, I can certainly tell you that I learned a lot of uh, skills. I, you know, baking bread. And <laughs> we talked about this in another podcast. <laughs> yeah, baking bread. I baked bread. <laughs> Lots of bread. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, now my, my kids, unfortunately, now, now they, they love when to make pizza, you know, from scratch. Now they all, they expect him to do it uh, more than I would want to. <laughs> uh, I, 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 made, I, 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 I built an ice rink, you know, so. Oh, you. Uh, wow. I, I know it's. <laughs> You're becoming <laughs> but, but super most, dad. <laughs> well, listen, listen, my, my, my kids are 50% Canadian, right? So I have to, you know, I have to make sure that they know how to skate and right. yeah, true. Ice, ice skate, right? <laughs> no, but more, ser- more seriously, um, you know, uh, certainly I know that we can be, uh, you know, very, at least in the short term, very productive as a lab and as a mentor, I can be very productive even in this situation, right? So there's a lot of stuff that I know that I can do remotely that I didn't even know. Whether I want to continue to do that, it's uh, it's very questionable. Probably the answer is going to be no, because I think eventually, right now, again, we're still living by, um, you know, taking advantage of data we already collected and, you know, we have papers to write and, and you know, you know, we're kind of almost like a, it's almost like an inertia from 2018-19 period, right? So there's a couple of more months of, of this wind that we can take advantage of. But then we're missing a lot of these, uh, you know, water cooler moments and just random meetings that would naturally happen if we're all in a, the same physical space, right? With colleagues and, and that, that eventually would turn into a, you know, lack of opportunities in the next couple of if it continues. So I know you asked me about what I learned and then <laughs> I talk about bread and, and ice rinks. And then I said, actually, <laughs> what I don't want to do. So I'm actually, I guess I learned how to be circuitous and <laughs> question that I don't know how to answer. <laughs> you just say it all comes back to neuroinflammation and everything's good. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, you know, I, I love this discussion on what supervisors can do to help create that that culture of belonging. And I think that's really a core question for so many grad students. You know, I think one of the biggest stresses in the grad school is I wish I had a great mentor and that supervisor supervisee relationship is just so hard to navigate. And I think many times when grad students choose a lab, maybe they don't get to meet the supervisor beforehand. Uh, They don't know what questions to ask about, you know, what kind of mentorship style do you have? Or (laughs) like, how do you even go about doing that or asking? I I don't know if a supervisor is necessarily your mentor, maybe a mentor is somebody else. Yeah. And so, you know, um, Marco, if you could share a bit, what, what is your secret of finding such great mentors? Or what would you say to a grad student who's like, I, want, I desperately want a great mentor and maybe my PhD supervisor is not, not the mentor I'm looking for. How can I go about finding other mentors? Yeah, no, I, this is absolutely. So uh, unfortunately, a little bit of luck is, you know, certainly part of life. There's, there's no, no secrets about that. Uh, but then, uh, you know, again, you can find so it's, you can you correctly pointed out your, your mentor doesn't 
your supervisor doesn't necessarily need to be your mentor. I mean, he would be your mentor uh, certainly on, for certain aspects, but doesn't have to be necessarily the, the single mentor you have. And maybe it's tougher to choose that mentor, but you can choose a, a, you know, a variety of other mentors, including peers, men, peer mentors, right? So there, there are ways to compensate whatever shortcoming your uh, mentor has. Um, and, and, and I think that gives a little bit more flexibility. You know, oh my, I don't know, maybe because oh, my PhD mentor maybe sucks, but you know what? You know, I can actually get a lot of career guidance by this postdoc that works in that lab. And so, so I think if you are a little bit proactive, and you are not shy, and you remember that your mentors doesn't own you, right? So it's, you know, uh, doesn't mean that he, he or she needs to be the the only mentor. You know, you can find opportunity to get mentorship elsewhere, and, and and in a way make up for it. And also, it's a matter of being a little bit also flexible too, right? So you also need to kind of uh, part of it is is kind of to calibrate the expectations. If I know that you know my mentor. It's not exactly the you know fuzzy warm guy or or lady, and uh, you know I, I you know I don't think you should insist about having like, this type of relationship. But maybe you can have the same sort of relationship with a different type of mentor. So that it's also come you know coming with a uh, you know uh, with a state of mind that you need to be a little bit flexible. Um, I think it's also part of the, uh, you know one of the one of the reason one of the mechanisms by which you can actually achieve a a healthy and, and happy relationship with your mentor. And there's mentorship, uh, but, but, you know, we don't have to go see a person and say, oh, can you be my mentor for three years? And it's like <laughs> not a big official thing that you have to sign, sign a contract. A contract yeah. You know, just an example with Marco, I sent a message to him through LinkedIn. I think it was a year ago because he was in a, in my field and he was an assistant doctor, came from the same university as me. And I wanted to get some guidance get some mentorship a little bit. You're proactive, bit. Justin. Oh, thank you. But, <laughs> but it, there's little gestures like that. Like when I didn't ask him, oh, can you be my mentor for the rest of my life? But, you know, you ask a question to these people who, you know, are are kind of you in a couple years, right? So that's, I, I'm inviting everyone to, to, through LinkedIn, through Facebook or whatever, you know, ask questions to people who you, who you look up to. You never know. Absolutely. And I think you would be surprised how happy even people that you think, oh, my God, this people, you know, these are super busy, uh, you know, famous people, you know, you know, these people, if they're there, uh, you know, it's because they love mentoring people. And they're, as you're saying, you know, they don't love mentoring people only if there is a, you know, some return to them. They, it's, you know, mo- many of these people actually would enjoy that, and so that's why you actually did it right. You, you know, uh, seeking out mentorship elsewhere and uh, and asking questions. Don't be shy. I guess that would be my my main, uh, you know, main, main suggestion. Don't be shy. Ask sick people. Ask uh, sick people out and ask uh, all the questions that you that you want to ask. Um, so one last thing, you know, I, you're talking about being famous and successful. People will look at you and say, wow, if only I could be like Marco. You know, he's at Harvard and he's successful and famous. <laughs> and he's and Italian and he has two <laughs> children and a wife. <laughs> yeah. Could he like, talk? Yeah. He can be the ice rinks. Yeah, he can be <laughs> the ice rinks. That's the definition of fame and success. Um, but yeah, like what, what is success for you? And how do you go about thinking about success and, and competition in, in an academic field and at a very competitive school like Harvard? 
That, so maybe I should, I should clarify that I wasn't necessarily saying, oh, I, oh I'm so famous and, and Jason is so likely, so, so likely to have. No, no, I was just talking, you know, a little bit more, uh, you know, um, broader terms. Uh, but anyway, so, so what is success to me? Uh, to, uh, well, success to me is happiness, right? I, I, that, that's, you know, that's why, um, you know, whatever you're doing, it makes you happy. And I know it sounds cheesy and corny, but it tr- truly is, right? you know, don't uh, follow uh, other people's dreams, right? So, you know, you might think that, you know, a very successful person is somebody who is super duper crazy busy that have, you know, the works like 110 hours a week, et cetera, et cetera, and doesn't have any any time for him or herself. Uh, and, you know, that person might be perfectly happy with that, uh, but maybe that's not success for you. It's not happens for you. And I, I absolutely stand by that. This is one of the few things that I, I can sign with my blood on that. So, Marco, are you happy? I am very happy. Oh, uh, my God. We love to hear that. <laughs> it's really. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, no. you know, I have to say, you know, with all the asterisks and, you know, uh, <laughs> footnotes, uh, knowing that we're living through a pandemic that, you know, has killed millions of people and, you know, the situation. I haven't seen my family in Italy for, you know, more than a year. And, and you know, but, but you know, that's, this is, I mean, this is something that everybody's living, right? All considered, uh, if you zoom out 30,000 feet, I, I think that, yes, I, I'm happy. I, 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 I would not do anything different. So. That's like, that's a great way to end our interview today. I think we can be talking for another couple hours. Do you have a limit? <laughs> we'll invite you back soon in, in season two, if, if, we, if we make it happen, but it was so, so insightful yeah. to get your perspective on things. It's really, it's really great. Thank you so much for your time. It's thank you. It's great. Yeah, we're gonna no, inspiring. Thank Thanks, Marco. And thank and thank you for doing this. It's I think it's it's great. No, it's just uh, to know, get your, your the professor's perspective on things, and just you know, we're not alone in this. Yeah. Graduate students, uh, you know, suffer mental illness or mental health troubles, and you mm. know, supervisors and professors do too. So we can't sometimes. be shy, and we can't be shy. <laughs> and ask for help. That's the yeah. main takeaway, right? I love that takeaway. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Marco. It's that we really thank appreciate you guys. it. Thank you. Be well. We'll be in touch. Thank you. I'm